Let's pray together before we come to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the, the words of Jesus. We pray that as we look, open, and look to your word now, that we would understand more of Jesus' instructions, that we understand who he is and what he's done, that we understand particularly today his death, his inevitable death on our behalf. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to respond with love and, and faith and, and uh, reverence for you. God, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke uh, chapter 22. We'll look at verses 1 through 23. Today is the first Sunday in March, and exactly one month from now, on the first Sunday of April, we will be celebrating Easter, Easter Day, uh, the Resurrection Sunday. Um, and we will that on that Easter weekend, we will be having many of our regular our our the services that we have. We'll have our Sunday morning service um, in its in its various forms as we've been having. Uh, we'll also be having on that Friday before uh, Sunday, the Good Friday. We'll be having our Good Friday uh, service. There'll be a fellowship service. It'll be uh, online uh, as well. And so, uh, um, I hope that as and, and I hope that you'll be able to join us for those things. Just uh, as a just kind of FYI, too, I think it's in the bulletins by now, but just also as a part of our Easter celebration, one week before Easter, uh, on the Saturday before, on March 28th, on that day, we're going to actually have an Easter, an Easter dinner, just like our Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, we're going to have an Easter dinner and fellowship together. So we're going to, our special events team is putting that together. Uh, worship ministry is also coordinating with them. And so we're looking, there's a couple, there's a little surprise ministry too. Uh, so please uh, put, put that on your calendars. It's going to be a meal. It's gonna have, we're going to have it delivered. So be on the lookout for that information. Hopefully you'll, you will join us. And it's always really neat to see everybody uh, on Zoom and see each other's faces. So, uh, and particularly because we get to celebrate uh, Easter together. And that will just be another a wonderful time of opportunity for us to worship and fellowship. Uh, but what is sort of neat is that on that Easter dinner night, that one week before Easter, on that Saturday, that's actually going to fall on uh, the Passover day, uh, the Jewish holiday Passover. So it will be especially significant. You know, just think about it. As we worship Christ, our Passover, um, in, around, who, the, the Passover lamb who died for our sins, we're actually going to be celebrating Christ, our Passover, on the Passover, uh, which is cool. It's just kind of neat, and hopefully you'll just think that's pretty sweet. Well, it just so happens that today's passage also describes Jesus' last supper with disciples, and the occasion then was also the Passover. In the events surrounding the Passover meal, Luke's, uh, Luke's record points to of essentially the inevitability of Christ's sacrificial death. Everything in this passage screams and says, Jesus Christ is going to die. The, the Passover, Jesus, the Passover lamb, is going to die. And especially in these, on this occasion of the, the celebration of the Passover. Um, Jesus' death was no accident. It was no uh, failure on his part. It was not a coincidence. 
but it was all because of the predetermined sovereign purpose and plan of God. And when we understand that what happens to Jesus is God's plan, then it causes us to ask ourselves the question, it should ask anybody the question who's thinking, why would he do this? Why does God plan for his son to die? And what should I do in response to it? What should I do about that? When something significant happens in our lives, we, lots of times we respond to it. There's nothing more significant than when the Son of God dies for you. Our passage takes place uh, uh, basically uh, on the, the last few days of Jesus' uh, week on earth, his Passion Week. It's, uh, some of this is uh, Wednesday, some of it's Thursday, and particularly the meal itself is on Thursday. Um, Jesus had been, at this point, teaching daily in the temple among the worshipers that were preparing for the Passover. And then in the evenings, he would withdraw to the Mount of Olives to the, to the east of Jerusalem uh, at night to spend time with his disciples. And on this uh, Thursday of the Passover, a meal, uh, he understands that the next day he would die. But on this Thursday, this Passover meal day, he and his disciples would share what is known as the Last Supper. And we kind of think of the Last Supper. It's made famous by that painting, the Last Supper painting, and, uh, and, and other stories. But um, as they share, as Jesus and his disciples, sh- disciples share in this Passover meal. And we'd read about the Passover meal in our, uh, a little bit in our call, in our call to worship. And so, so an outline for us today, as we look at this passage, it's uh, just kind of a, a narrative, a story. It just, Luke is just describing what happens. We can see three actions surrounding Jesus' Last Supper that point to the inevitability of his sacrificial death. And so they, just, they, they point to us, they, they tell the reader that Jesus had to die. The Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So let's take a look um, at the first point, the first event, the first action that takes place that points to uh, Jesus' inevitable death, sacrificial death. And that is verse, in verses 1 to 6. It is the betrayal of Jesus. The betrayal of Jesus. Verses 1 to 6. We'll read the whole thing. Uh, verse, all six verses. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Luke tells us here in these verses that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a.k.a. also known as the Passover, was approaching. According to Exodus chapter 12, the Passover was that Jewish holiday that commemorated the Lord's passing over the houses of the Israelites who had applied the blood of the Lamb to their doorposts of their home, leading eventually to their bond, deliverance from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Now, immediately following the Passover was a seven-day feast, a week-long feast, called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that commemorated the unleavened, eating unleavened bread, reminded them of the, the hasty departure of the Israelites out of Egypt. And here, so here on the holiest of days, uh, we would expect that in the, in the Jewish calendar at that time, there was basically three main holidays that all Israelite males would be expected to go to Jerusalem. This was one of them, the Passover. 
Here on this holy day, one would have expected the religious leaders, the, the chief priests, the, uh, to be preparing for the celebration, preparing for the worship, leading the people in the worship of God. But instead, what do we find here is that the, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, were instead seeking how they might put him to death. They wanted to figure out a way how to murder Jesus. The irony is immense. As the nation seeks to celebrate the redemption, the leaders seek to kill the Redeemer. Of course, they were threatened by Jesus' authority and popularity. Lesser men are often threatened by, uh, by greatness, especially the greatness of God before them. They were threatened even by his, uh, his ability to teach with power and authority. They were threatened by his, the way that he would, he would just, the crowds uh, followed him. They were threatened because he was not afraid to, to, to just overthrow things that are going on in the temple. To them, he was a dangerous man with dangerous ideas and dangerous power. Mark eleven eighteen 18 tells us that they were actually afraid of him, which is why they were trying to destroy him. But they were also afraid of the people, according to Luke here. So they couldn't just arrest him right during the daytime when he was teaching in the temple for no good reason. The people would be upset. They'd say, what are you doing that for? We like him. They, they knew that if they did so, they would have started a riot. The dilemma for these religious leaders was not whether Jesus was the true Messiah or not. They didn't really care about that. But rather, it was how they might kill him. It's not just whether they would kill him. They want to figure out how to kill him. They had already planned to kill him a while back. And this was what the religious leaders were seeking. But it wasn't just the religious leaders that were seeking to kill Jesus. So was Satan. The devil himself gets involved here and possesses Judas Iscariot. So I believe this is actual possession, though it doesn't manifest in you know, wildness and craziness like some other people that were possessed of spirits. But Satan tells, enters into uh, Judas. And while Satan could be expected here, because this is the Son of God, it's, and Satan is opposed to the plans of God, he, we expect him to, to infiltrate and, and try to oppose the things of Jesus. But what is surprising is that, what we don't expect is that Judas would be involved. One of the twelve would be involved. One of his closest disciples. This was one who has heard his words of truth. This is one who has observed his miracles. This is one who has shared meals together and traveled together. This Judas went away to the chief priests and officers, the very ones who were seeking to kill Jesus, and Judas offers to provide exactly what they were seeking, a way to kill Jesus. He offers to them how he might betray him to them. Jesus had earlier in his ministry in Luke 9.44 revealed that he would be delivered into the hands of men. And in Luke 18.32, he prophesied that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. Both times the word delivered, the word handed over, is the same word that is translated here as betrayed. So you could translate that he would be betrayed into the hands of men. He would be betrayed over to the Gentiles. Now we understand that Jesus would be betrayed to the Jewish leaders and eventually to the Gentiles by one of his own disciples. The religious leaders must have actually Praise God and thought it an answered prayer that Judas would appear with a solution to their problem. They were glad, it says in the scriptures, and so they agreed 
to give him money. They consented. They must have been a bargain that they had. And Matthew tells us that Judas actually sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas began then seeking a good opportunity to betray Jesus. And we cannot miss that, ironically, the word seeking is the same one used earlier, the spiritual leaders. They were seeking how to kill Jesus. Now Judas was seeking how to betray Jesus. The apparent motive for Judas was, was greed. He wanted more than what Jesus offered. He loved what the world, what the religious leaders could offer more than what Jesus offered. So when they offered him 30 pieces of silver, he consented to betray Jesus. Now Jesus knew the hearts of men. Throughout his ministry, all throughout time, he would know what people are thinking even without saying it. And in his omniscience, he knew the heart of Judas. Though Judas would betray him, Jesus still chose Judas to be among the twelve. Isn't that interesting? Intentionally he chose him, purposefully he chose him. He chose him even though knowing that he would lead to his inevitable death at the hands of men. Now Judas's Judas's description here is a warning really to all who profess to follow Jesus. You know, we're all following Jesus. We're all like his disciples. We're all going, uh, following after his words. We're listening to his truths. We're spending time with him. We're doing his, we're about his work. We're hanging out with him. Let me ask you the question, why do you follow Jesus? You're, if you're a disciple, you're a student of Jesus, you're a learner of Jesus, you're a Christian, why do you follow him? What, do you, what, do you, what is it that you're seeking from Jesus? I'll tell you what Jesus offers. Jesus offers eternal life in the kingdom of God and forgiveness of sin. That is what Jesus offers. He offers really himself. And if you want something other than that, if you want something other than forgiveness of sins, eternal life in the kingdom of God, if you want more than just Jesus, then you're going to be in a dangerous place. You're going to be in, that's going to put you in a place of temptation. For what will you do when the world offers it to you? If the world offers you riches, recognition, relationships. And if you want that more than what Jesus offers to you, then you will be tempted to betray Jesus too, just as Jesus did. But a genuine faith in Christ is going to be an abiding faith that loves Jesus and what he offers more than this world and what it offers. Move on to our second, uh, second action. The first action, uh, the betrayal of Jesus, pointing to his inevitable death. Secondly, the second action we see here is the, is the preparation of the Passover. The preparation of the Passover in verses 7 through 13. And we'll, read all, uh, we'll read all the verses now. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you, carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, 
the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. The event uh, described here in, in these verses is quite similar to what took place back in chapter 19 of Luke, Luke 19, 29, and 35. And if you recall there in Luke 19, 29, and 35, there in preparation for his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus sent again two of his disciples ahead of him into one of the small villages. And he told them that there they would find, and once they entered the village, they would find a colt tied, uh, tied up, which no one has ever sat upon. They would then untie and bring that donkey to him so that he could ride it. And if anyone said to him, said to them, what were they doing? Then they would simply just say, the Lord has need of it. And presumably, whoever was the owner of that donkey would give it to them. And they would be allowed to take the colt. Now, both that event in Luke 19, as well as this event, share several common elements. Both involve a mission involving two of his disciples. Both involve a coincidental meetings, uh, whether it's a, you will just happen to see a donkey tied there or you're going to happen to see a man carrying some water. Uh, both involve prepared phrases. So if someone asks you, what are you doing? Uh, say this. If someone's asked, when you see the master of the house, say this. Both involve acquiring provisions for significant moments in Jesus' ministry, for the triumphal entry, for the Passover meal, the Last Supper. And what we noted back in chapter 19 is the same thing that we'll note here. That even in the preparation of his, of, this last, of his last Passover, Jesus has complete knowledge and control of every detail. He's in control of all things. He knows all things. He's a, he's a, uh, he is sovereign. And verse 7 um, tells us that this takes place on the, on the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So presumably verse 1 to 6 probably took place somewhere along, you know, in the previous days, maybe Wednesday, and even uh, before that maybe. But this part takes place on Thursday, the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now according to Exodus 12, this would have been done on the afternoon before the Passover feast. And since Jesus would be crucified the next day, we, we know that he's crucified on Friday. This event takes place then on Thursday is the, it's the day. Uh, so, but due to the different ways of marking the beginning and ending of days, Jews from Galilee sacrifice and observe the Passover on Thursday, while Jews from Judea sacrifice and observe the Passover on Friday. So they, Israel kind of celebrated on two different days. And that kind of worked out practically for Israelites because then there was a lot of lambs to be sacrificed. And so it was just, uh, it was, it just worked out that way. So, but Jesus, because he and his disciples were mostly from Galilee, they celebrated the Passover on Thursday, Thursday evening. And, but nevertheless, Passover lambs, uh, lambs for the meals would be sacrificed on Thursday as well as on Friday. And it's, and it's just a, it's a picture, when you understand this historically, is that the Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed on the cross the day that the Passover lambs were sacrificed in the temple. And their meat shared by all Israelites all across Jerusalem. Now Jesus would eat this last Passover meal with his disciples. But preparation was required. And so he sends Peter and John, the two most well-known of his disciples, he sends the two of them to go prepare it. And they're like thinking, um, you know, the meal is tonight. 
you want us to go prepare. The, it's like showing up uh, at my, uh, you know, me coming to your door on Christmas Day morning. I say, hey, uh, can you prepare my Christmas dinner? And you're like, how are we going to prepare it? Where are we going to prepare it? The city is full of people. Everybody, everybody's already been preparing, Jesus. And but Jesus says, you prepare. Go prepare the meal. And so they ask how. Um, when they ask where they prepare, Jesus gives this incredible answer in ver- that we read in verse 10 to 12. He says, basically, go into the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, and just as m- at the moment you enter the city, you're going to meet a man there carrying a pitcher of water. And, and many commentators say that it was unusual for this to happen, and not many men would be carrying water. Usually the women would be carrying water. And then you def- don't even bother doing anything with him, just follow him to the house that he enters. And then when he enters the house, speak to the owner of that house, and then just <laughs> with the phrase that he tells in phrase, and then he will show you a large furnished upper room, basically an upper room already furnished, already provided with all provisions, and that's where you're going to prepare the meal. <laughs> now, it's been suggested by some commentators that Jesus secretly has somehow prearranged these things when he was in Jerusalem earlier. And while that is certainly possible, and it doesn't really, it, um, it's not unbiblical to say that, it's, it's not a necessary inference from the context. It's not necessary. Rather, I believe the indefiniteness of the individual people, the, the man carrying the pitcher of water, the owner of the house, as well as the indefiniteness even of the instructions of just enter the city. It doesn't say when, it doesn't say where, which gate to go in. So enter the city, and then you're going to meet a man. Follow him into the house that he enters, whichever house that is. All of this hints at Jesus' divine foreknowledge. Lastly, in both this passage as well as back in Luke 19, there's the identical phrases used by Luke. Whatever Jesus told them, gave, whatever instruction he gave his disciples, they went out and they found everything just as he had told them. <laughs> whatever Jesus said, that's exactly what happened. That is Jesus' divine foreknowledge. It is his knowledge and sovereignty over every detail of his last Passover. So there in the large furnished upper room, Peter and John prepare for Jesus' last Passover meal. Everything's provided. It's furnished by the, the owner of the house. The cushions, the large lower table where they recline at, the lamb for the meal, the unleavened bread for the meal, the bitter herbs for the meal, and certainly the wine for the meal. And as everything is furnished for the Last Supper, we're reminded that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And just as everything was furnished in the Last Supper, so everything is furnished by the Father for our salvation. We didn't have to prepare for our Passover meal. Jesus, our Passover. It was provided by God the Father. All by Him. From the beginning of His life and ministry to the end, it was all a provision of the Father. That a virgin would give birth to a son whose earthly father and mother were of the line of David. Who, this one who would obey the law perfectly, teach it powerfully. This one who would perform signs and wonders. And though he should have been received as the promised messianic king, he was rejected by the religious leaders, betrayed by one of his own, and crucified by Roman soldiers. And all of this provided for by God. Not, it was not a coincidence, not accident, not a mistake, but it was by the sovereign plan and will of God. The death of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, is intentional. It's ine- it was inevitable. It was the plan of God. 
And then thirdly, we move into the last, uh, third and final point that points to the inevitable death of Jesus. That is, the, in verse 14 to 23, the institution of the Lord's Supper. The institution of the Lord's Supper. I just love how it just in, providence, in God's providence, today is actually uh, Communion Sunday, and we got to observe that earlier, the Lord's Supper. And, and what I, sometimes we, when I didn't mention earlier, but in the Passover meal, especially by this time, there were four parts to this meal. Uh, uh, and for each part of the meal would conclude with the drinking of a cup of wine. So there'd be four parts, four cups of wine. In the second part, the head of the household would recount the story of how God delivered Israel from their bondage in Egypt. And then uh, every food item in, uh, in the meal had a symbolic meaning. Of course, we talked about the leavened bread symbolizing the haste in leaving, the, the bitter herb symbolizing the bitterness of slavery, and of course, the roasted lamb symbolizing the, the lamb that was sacrificed so that its blood could be applied to the doorposts of the, every, every household, sparing them from the angel of death. And it was during the third part of the meal, the third bar meal, before, that's where basically the meal would actually be eaten, where the bread, the, the, the cup, the, uh, the, the lamb would be eaten together, and the herbs. And throughout the, whole, the Israelites' whole lives, throughout the disciples' whole lives, they had heard what all these elements symbolize. But this night, on this day, this last Passover meal of Jesus, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, through his explanation, they would come to understand the full significance of the Passover. And we too. Here in this Last Supper, Jesus introduced something called the Lord's Supper, which we call communion. Everything points in this communion, in this last, the Lord's Supper, to the inevitability of his death. First, Jesus reveals that this is his last Passover, at least for a while. Verse 14 18, look there with me. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. When the time began for the Passover meal, Jesus reclined there with his apostles, all 13 in all, 13 people in all, right? 12 disciples and Jesus. And he knows, according to Luke, that he knows he's going to suffer soon. He knows that he will never eat it again, this meal, until the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, which we looked at in the previous sermons and previous times, is that future time, that understanding, that promise from, uh, to, the, to David, where one of his descendants, this one known as the Son of Man, would sit and rule on the throne of David in Jerusalem over all the earth. And at that future time, Jesus says, when that kingdom of God is established, the Passover will be fulfilled. He's not going to eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So up to this point, the Passover had always meant looking back for the Israelites. They, they looked back to remember the deliverance of, of Israel out of Egypt from their, slave, their bondage of, of slavery. But the Passover, on this occasion, Jesus reveals, foreshadows an ultimate future deliverance from their bondage of sin. And that this Passover ultimately would be fulfilled when, in the kingdom of God when Jesus returns as king. 
So in the meal, as Jesus, uh, we read here, in, uh, as verse 17, uh, the, he picks up the second cup. And out, Jesus would, he says he would never again drink of the wine until his second coming to establish the kingdom of God. He's, he's never going to drink this Passover meal again. Jesus is going to go away, and he will go away and after suffering and dying on the cross for our sin. He's not going to remain and eat of the Passover meal with the Israelites anymore, with his disciples. So, not only does he reveal that this is his last Passover, but secondly, he gives new meaning to the elements of this formal Passover meal, in which we, uh, which we just observed earlier, in verse 19 to 20. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We just covered this earlier in communion, but Jesus takes the bread and he gives it a new meaning. With a very short sentence, he says, This is my body which is given for you. Jesus was using here a figurative language, as was common. He, he did that often in his life. He says, I am the door, I am the vine. Uh, and so he's talking about, he's using an imagery that they were familiar with, and he says, uh, this bread is my body. The bread of the, of the Lord's Supper here is meant to be symbolic. Of course, it's not his actual physical body because Jesus' body was actually, you know, right there in their presence. So he was saying this symbolizes his body. This symbolizes it. It was a, it was a reminder that the bread that they were going to partake was a symbol and reminder of the body of Christ that would be crucified on the cross. He says, this is my, my body which is given for you. Even in that short phrase, we learn that his death would be a bodily death, my body. It was, his death would be a voluntary death, which is given. And his death would be a sacrificial death for you. Jesus died as a sacrifice, as a substitute for you and me. In verse 20, Jesus then gives new meaning to the cup, the third cup of the meal, of the Passover meal. It concluded the eating time, usually, and, and he passes the cup of wine, and, and he tells them, and he conveys that this gives this cup significance. He says that it symbolizes his blood that would be shed. Now, you remember the Old Testament, every time there was a covenant, it would be ratified by blood. Animals between two people make covenants, they would make an animal sacrifice, and they would sometimes often walk through the halves the, the halves of the animals. In Exodus 24, verse 6 to 8, the Mosaic covenant was inaugurated by the, by the blood of sacrificed bulls. But this covenant here is called, is not the old covenant, but it's the new covenant. And the new covenant, when we see this terminology of new covenant, it's, it's actually found in the old, old covenant. In passages like Jeremiah 31, verse 31, 34. But essentially in the new covenant, God promised to forgive Israel their sins. He promised to remember them no more and to give them the inner ability to obey his commands. He would write his law on their hearts. And this would be because he would, be, he would also dwell within them in the spirit of God. And this covenant, this new covenant, had to be inaugurated. And it would be inaugurated by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Again, the, the sacrificial nature of his death is reflected in the phrase, poured out for you. So with both elements, with the bread and with the cup, Jesus' disciples then are told to do them 
or take them in remembrance of him. The meal points to his death for us. It's to remind us of Jesus' death. A lot of times, even when we go to funerals or memorials or services, there's usually a meal afterwards. And that meal sort of reminds us, or it's time for us to reflect upon together on the, the life of the person who died. But Jesus here institutes any, uh, a meal that we would regularly, consistently take until he returns, and that meal would constantly remind us of his death. We are never to forget it. And whenever we take it together, albeit in these days we're taking them virtually, we are all remembering together what Christ did for us. Lastly, not only do we see then uh, that he, uh, uh, that in his, uh, in this meal, it's his last Passover meal, and that he uh, kind of, that he gives um, new meaning to the elements of the Passover meal, but lastly, he reveals that he knows of his impending betrayal by one of his own. He knows, he reveals that one of his own is going to betray him. Verse 21 through 23, we'll end with these verses. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on that table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Now Jesus, if you notice here, doesn't publicly identify Judas. He doesn't say, and that one is you, Judas. He doesn't call him out. He just simply tells them that it's one of them. And it was shocking for anyone to eat a Passover meal with someone. No one, this is the most unexpected thing to do, to eat a Passover meal with someone who is going to betray you. The Passover meal was meant to be shared with, with family, with neighbors, not with enemies. And the 12 were like his family. For the last three years, they were with him everywhere he went. And they so close, and yet they, they couldn't even grasp that it would be any of them. They couldn't grasp that they didn't even think it was Judas. Jesus knows, though, that it is Judas. We know this because in John's parallel, when Peter asks him kind of quietly, hey, who is it, Lord? You know, then um, Peter, he tells Peter that the one whom I dip this bread in hand to, he's the one. So he dips his bread into, into the, 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 the juices of the, the and then, and, then he, and then he hands it to, um, to Judas. And then he tells Judas to, what he does to go do it quickly. And Judas leaves. But according, notice according to Jesus' words in verse 22 of our, of our passage, Jesus understands that his death is ordained by God. He says, indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Mark's account records something similar. It's almost a, it's a parable. It says, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. See, Jesus is not a helpless, ignorant victim. He is fully aware that his betrayal, his death, are all determined by God and foretold in God's word. And although, and, and so he, he understands and he accepts his inevitable death, and although his death is ordained by God, though, 
Nevertheless, still in the latter part of the verse, we see that the one who betrays him, Judas is in this case, is still culpable and responsible for his actions. He says, woe to that man by whom he, that is the son of man, is betrayed. Jesus pronounces a woe, a lament. It's like, this guy's in bad shape. Poor, the, poor Judas. It's going to be bad for him. Woe upon this man. What's more, the passive voice of betrayed, is betrayed, that the Son of Man is betrayed, emphasize that Judas is the one who actively betrays Jesus. He consents to betray Jesus. And he will be judged for his sin, according to Jesus' words. Judas outwardly appeared just like, the, like an everyday disciple, everyday apostle. He was just like the rest of them. He walked like them, talked like them mostly. He, he was, uh, did a lot of things they did. But in his heart, and this is the hard thing, sometimes people will all look to say, but ultimately in the heart, what reveals is, uh, which no one can see, he never truly trusted in Jesus. Yes, he trusted in Jesus probably for some things, but he did not truly trust in Jesus for salvation. He did not truly love Jesus more than everything else. He loved himself more. And that's why when he was offered something more than what Jesus could offer him, he betrayed the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. In these uh, three parts of the institution of the Lord's Supper, we see the very elements that we remember today in communion. Um, just as uh, uh, we look forward, we, in communion we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. We look back to the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. And we look within to ensure that we are not betraying Jesus by our words or our actions. These are the three events that surround, uh, three actions that surround Jesus' last supper with his disciples, the celebration of that last Passover for Jesus. And we're simply, we, we, hopefully you see that Jesus' death was inevitable, and Jesus understood that. It was ordained by God, accomplished at the hands of sinful men. And the real question we ask is, why? Why did he die? Well, as Jesus tells us, he died for you. This is my body, which is given for you. This cup, which is poured out for you. Before you ever prayed to him, before you ever thought about him, before you ever asked him for forgiveness and asked him to cleanse you of your sins, before you ever even existed, God planned for his son, to die for you. For you. Knowing that the Son of God then humbled himself to be born as a man, live a perfect life, and then unjustly die an agonizing death reserved for lowly criminals, for you should move you to respond. It moves all of us to respond. The question is, how will you respond? Will you respond with antagonism? like the religious leaders? Would you respond with a, a half-hearted, maybe a hypocritical faith, like Judas, 
until something better comes along? Or we respond with wholehearted, absolute, total, genuine trust and faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you will respond with this last. Uh, in, just, in conclusion, just hopefully just leave you these three questions. Third, the first one I've already kind of hinted at. How will you respond to Jesus' inevitable death for you? How are you responding? How do you respond? If your response is, well, I, I trusted him, I prayed the prayer to receive him 30 years ago. That's how I responded. And I don't think you fully understand that Jesus' death is not just for you then, it's for you now. And his death continues to impact and, and cause us to respond even now. Do you love him? Do you serve him? Do you grow in your, in your desire to, to be useful to him? There's a response of our lives, of our daily lives to him. Number two, um, I want to, in light of Judas, what happened to Judas, I ask you the question, what are you seeking from Jesus? Why are you following Jesus? You know, what, what is it that you want from him? Why do you come to be identified as Christian? Why are you joining with us online? What are you seeking from him? Perhaps there's some, whatever you're seeking from him is what he offers. But are, you, are there things that you want more than what he offers? Sometimes people follow Jesus to, for, for just temporal reasons, for uh, connections, for s- maybe a sense of significance, for, uh, for uh, relationships, for community even. Things not necessarily bad, but they're not the main reason. And sometimes you can find some of those things more from the world. We must be aware of those things so that when the world offers it, you aren't going to be one who just leaves Jesus and betrays him. Ask yourselves, are there things that you want more than what he offers? Thirdly, third question. We see the really through the sovereignty of God, the plan and purpose of God. How does the sovereignty of God encourage you in your life? Knowing that God orchestrates all the details, Jesus is aware of all the details, how does that affect you? Hopefully it will encourage you, you know, that God's in control of every detail. God's in control of our world. God's in control of, our, of our, this pandemic, COVID-19. God's in control of your work situation, your family situation. Yes. And he's working it all out for your good to those who love him sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, to conform us into his image. Hopefully you can see that and know that God's in control because God sent his son. God sent his, our Passover, our Passover, the Passover lamb. John said of him when he saw him after he was walking from, uh, on the, when John the Baptist was walking, uh, baptizing people, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. Let us respond with worship and love and trust in Him. Let us serve Him with all our heart and all mind. Let's invite others to know Him. Let's pray for open doors to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. As we see the, these elements surrounding the, uh, the last supper of Jesus with his disciples. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that Christ's death was inevitable. That it was part of your determined, predetermined, ordained plan. From the betrayal of Judas to even the details of the preparation for the Passover to the institution of the Lord's Supper. These things all remind us that Christ came to die. And he died not because of his own sake, but he died for us. Oh Lord, we thank you. We know that we are unworthy, did not deserve it, but Lord, you nevertheless did. Help us to give you praise and worship. Help us to respond with faith and love. Help us to respond with the worship you deserve. Help us to respond with telling others of what you've done. Inviting them to follow Jesus as well and receive the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That they would come to see as we see that the greatest thing of all is the, is the treasures that Jesus gives. Life in the kingdom. With you forever. Father, Guard us from temptations. Guard us from idols. Guard us from wanting things of this world that we really can't even keep. Guard us from ever betraying Jesus for things that will be meaningless, will have no meaning when this life is through. Help us to seek after Jesus and the treasure that he gives, the life that he gives, the, the hope that he gives. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Please help us to be a church that lives according to your word, that to do just as whatever, do just as, just as you instruct us, so that we might be the church that you want us to be, that we'd be faithful to make disciples of Jesus Christ, especially during this Easter season. Lord, grant us many open doors tell of Jesus to others. And Lord, may you do the work of saving their souls. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a final song.